There's a, I'm going to invite you to go to Philippians chapter 4. Join me there in a moment. As you're turning, there are sermon notes going out. There was reading a story about a man who was talking about how through life, he was, this sermon was talking about how things change in life and how we look at life's perspectives. <laughs> in his opening, he made these comments. He's talking about how we figure age and how we get a little bit older. He says, have you, have you, <coughs> excuse me, have you ever noticed how birthdays have a unique way of revealing our thoughts on aging? Do you realize that the only time in our lives when we liked growing older was when we were little kids? When we were less than 10 years old, we were so excited about aging that we used fractions. If someone asked how old you were, you would respond, I'm five and one half. Then you hit double digits and began dreaming of the next major milestone, age 13. Oh, to be a teenager, life will finally be all that I dreamed it would be, or so we thought. When 13 finally got there, you immediately began skipping years. If someone asked how old you were, you would say, I'm almost 16. You might have two years to go, but that's completely ignored. You're almost 16. Then came 21, and you'd finally arrived, right? Even the words sounded like a ceremony. You became 21. But that didn't last very long. Soon you turned 30 and wondered where the time went. Next thing you know, you're pushing 40. Not long after that, you reach 50. Strange how we word this progression of time, isn't it? You become 21, turn 30, pushing 40, reach 50. You make it to 60. And then by the time you've built up so much momentum, you hit 70. After that, you simply are in your 80s. But if you make it past that, you start going backward. You say, I was just 92 or I was 95 last year. Then a really strange phenomenon happens. If you're one of the select few who would make it to the century mark, you start thinking like a kid again. Someone asks how old you are, and you say, I'm 101 half. I'm almost 102. The same guy wrote, he said that, that there was a time that he got a letter from somebody in his church, and he said this letter reads this way. I am hereby officially tendering my resignation as an adult. I have decided I would like to accept responsibilities of a six-year-old again. I want to go to McDonald's and think it's a four-star restaurant. I want to see who can blow the biggest bubble. I want to think M&Ms are better than money because you can eat them. I want to drink Kool-Aid and eat lemon heads with my friends. I don't want to change my clothes because they're getting a little dirty. I want to enjoy every day like a summer vacation. I want to return to a time when life was simple. All you knew was to be happy because you were unaware of all the things that should make you worried or upset. I want to be excited about little things again, like my new match car box or pogo sticks. Match car, um, matchbox car or bogo stick. I want to live simply again. I don't want my days to consist of computer crashes, paperwork, cleaning, kids, chores, depressing news, illness, and loss. I want to be in a roller derby. I want to believe the Three Stooges are real. So here's my checkbook, my car keys, my credit cards, my 40K statements, my laptop, my iPad, my smartphone. I'll keep that. My fax machine, and not least of all, my mortgage payment book. I'm officially resigning from adulthood. And if you want to discuss this further, you'll have to catch me first because tag, you're it. You got cooties. See you later, alligator. Sometimes we feel that way, don't we? Sometimes it'd be nice to turn back the clock and to go back to a more simpler way of life. Can I encourage you to do something this morning, this week? If you want to make things a little bit more simpler again, you want to enjoy the innocence of childhood again, maybe work on this. We can't turn back the clock. We can't take away the wrinkles. We can't get rid of, we can try to pretend we've covered up the gray hair. We can't get rid of the arthritis and the aches and the pains. But we can do this. We can work on becoming more content with where we're at. We can become more content with the way God has made us. We can work this week at becoming more content with what, a God, what God is allowing in our life, where God has placed us.
the family that God has given us, with what God has taken away from us. We can work at becoming more content where God is leading, what God has given to you, what God has given you to. We can become more content with the idea of what God hasn't given us. This idea of contentment is abounding in Scripture. There are so many passages that talk about it. It's, it's kind of like the, talking about prayer. When you bring up prayer, most everybody who has any spiritual sense or bone in their body will say, that's something I need to work on. It's like talking about witnessing. As soon as you bring up sharing the gospel, most everybody with an ounce of spirituality says, yeah, that's something I've got to work on. It's like preaching on family. Most anybody who's in a relationship says, yeah, that's something I've got to improve on. Working at contentment is one of those issues of scriptures that when we bring it up, all of us, any of us, any who has any spiritual inkling says, yeah, that is something I've got to really work on because we battle with it. We know scriptures talks about a lot. In fact, it gives us a lot of illustrations about not being content in the problems it creates. The people in the wilderness complain and they mumble and they murmur right after God brings them out of the land of Egypt that they've been praying to get out of. He gives them a miracle of the Red Sea and immediately, within days, they're complaining that God hasn't done enough for them. God provides for them in such a marvelous way. We were looking at the book of Isaiah, uh, Nehemiah a couple weeks ago, and it says that what happened while they were in that area of going through the wilderness, that their shoes never wore out and their feet never got sore of 40 years of wandering. How God took care of them, yet they were complaining. We read in scriptures about how David, not content with what God has given him in the area of being satisfied physically with his natural desires, that he was discontent and he was looking at another man's wife. Well, we all know where that leads to. How that lack of contentment brought into his life all kinds of disgrace and trouble and misery and affected his own children and generations afterwards. We read the stories about how one of his boys, not content with the wealth that he had, not content with, with the grandeur of living in a palace, wanted to have more and more and more and more and started getting more wives and more, more wealth and, more, and got his eyes off of the Lord. Because of his lack of contentment, he goes away from the Lord for a period of time and has to come to the end of himself where he says, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. And I've got to learn the conclusion of the whole matter. It's to fear God. We read of a prophet who wasn't content in the service that God has given him. In fact, he felt that he was being overused, that he was being overburdened, that he was the only one left serving Jehovah. God has to remind him there's 5,000 more. He didn't like the ministry that he was given. He complained about it. It was too hard, too difficult. And God had used him to bring about a revival. But in lack of contentment, he runs. We read about Jesus talking about a lack of contentment in the life of a rich man. This rich man who says that he needs to get more and more and more. And he builds up more barns, tears down the ones he has, gets more crops. And he realizes too late that at the end he can't take any of it with him. And Jesus says he died. And he ends up with nothing. Then you turn around and you find scriptures abounding with passages where in Matthew 6, Jesus is going to be saying to the crowd, he says, stop worrying, learn to be content. There's enough evil for tomorrow. Don't let it overtake your joy today. And he says, I say unto you, take no thought of your life, what you shall eat or drink, nor yet your body, what you shall put on. And he goes on and gives the illustration that God cares for the birds, he cares for us, he gives us what we need. We read in Luke 12, a man's life consists not in the abundance of things that he possesses, but the point Jesus makes is in his relationship with the Lord. We read how contentment is so important. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world. It is certain we're not taking anything out. 
We read elsewhere that the love of money is the root of all evil. That many who seek after it, they bring to themselves. They pierce themselves through, he says, with all kinds of evil, not being content. They've got to have more and more and more and more. We read how the Bible reads that we're supposed to let our lifestyle, our conversation be without covetousness, be content with the things that we have, and especially because God says, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. God knows all that we need. He bestows upon us everything we need. We're supposed to be content and seek first the kingdom of God. Ecclesiastes talks about being content in our labors and our toils and not forever pushing, pushing for more and more. Then you have the book of Philippians. Philippians 4, you have the story, the testimony, the eyewitness account of a man who's wrapping up his letter and giving personal comments. And he says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last of your care for me, it's flourished again. You were so generous to me. You were careful. You gave to me. And you, lack, you didn't lack meeting my needs. And he goes on, not that I speak in respect of want. I'm not saying thank you for your gifts so you give me more gifts. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to become content. I know both how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere in all things. I am instructed both how to be full, how to be hungry, both to abound, to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. You take this text. You take these other texts and you say, what do they teach us about contentment? What do they teach us about having joy with where we're at, what God has made us like, what he has given to us, what he has taken away, what he has not given to us? And here's some principles that stand out to me. Number one is this. A spirit of contentment is not one of many choices, but it is a command of God for everyone who is a born-again believer. Here, today, we're going to do a lunch afterwards. We're going to have all kinds of choices. Turkey, 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 turkey. A variety of different ways that turkey has been done and the leftovers are here. But we get there and we have all kinds of choices and that's the way some of us have been approaching the Christian life when it comes to contentment. We come and say, it's okay if I'm not content today. I can be grumpy today. It's okay if I'm not content with my house. I can complain about it. I can complain about my job. I can complain about my kids. And, and it's, it's, it's a smorgasbord. I can take it. I can leave it. But that's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God gives us very clear directions. It commands us to become content. It's not a choice. It's not a selection we can pick from the table or pass up. It is commanded that be content with such things as you have. It is, it is the Word of God saying for you and I who are believers, this is what we must have in our life. We read in Philippians 4 where he writes, rejoice, and again I say rejoice, while he's in prison. And he's writing to people who are going through difficulties. We read through the Word of God that no matter what happens, count it all joy when you fall into different trials and different troubles. Become content. Become content where he says in this passage, we brought nothing into this world, certain can't take anything out. Having food and raiment, let us be content. It's commanded. Contentment is not a choice. It is a command of God. I learned something else that to me is astounding and challenging. Contentment, a spirit of contentment is not based on a personality trait. It's based on a personal discipline, a spiritual discipline. What I mean by that is this. Some will say here this morning that they're a contented person. We, we say that about babies, that this baby is a very contented child and this baby is a very 
non-contented child, okay? And we understand that with infants, that there might be some who have that ravishing hunger and their metabolism may be such that they're constantly eating. And then you have others that they're just a sleeper and they're just a very contented child and some, they don't sleep much and neither do you, okay? And we understand that that can be the case with little kids, but we are beyond little kids spiritually. We aren't supposed to be saying, well, this is just the way I am. I am naturally grumpy. I am naturally a critical person. I am naturally a person who sees the negatives and struggles to see the positives. I'm the type of person that is very, very, you might color it this way, I'm a very discerning person. I can see the fault in others and find the negatives. And you can blush it over, cover it over, without realizing the fact is this. The fact is, contentment is a command of God. Contentment isn't based upon our personalities. Yes, granted, some of you might be more easily inclined to show the joy and the peace and the contentment than some of us. But whether our personalities, wherever they are in that spectrum of joy and happiness, we are all supposed to be working on it. We cannot excuse, therefore, the idea that, that we can be grumpy. Paul writes and says, I have learned to be content. It is a personal discipline. It is something that he says that I have had to work on. It took me time to work on this attitude. It took me effort to learn this, to apply it to my life. He is saying that I have had to discipline myself, that when I have been hungry, when I have not abounded, to learn to be content. When I have had a lot, when I have had overflowing, when I've had more food than I can, I have had to learn to be content. I have had to work on the idea of not becoming a complainer, not becoming a criticizer, not becoming one who sees the negative. I have to work on becoming more content. Paul is not excusing it. He isn't the individual that says, this is the way I am, you've got to put up with it. Not if you're a believer. If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot do this. You cannot say that, you know, that, that this is the way I am and the world has to put up with me. He says, I need to work at being more thankful. I have to work at being less critical at work. I have to stop looking for the negatives in other people. I have to be looking for the blessings more and more. I can't excuse the grumpiness at home. I can't excuse the negative attitude about school or about my classmate or about my dorm mate. I've got to change that. I have to learn to be more content and not excuse it because this is the way I am. Because I'm tired. Because I'm old. It gives me the right to be a grump. Not true. Because I'm a teenager. I can be a grumpy person. Not true. You are a believer in Jesus Christ if you're born again. You are commanded by God to work at contentment. And so then it comes down to this. A spirit of contentment is not dependent upon our circumstances, but it's our mindset. And this text of all texts shows it where Paul is saying, hey, I've got all kinds of circumstances going in my life. And I have learned in all of these circumstances to work at being contentment. Now, when he's writing this, he is writing from prison. And he is writing from prison and saying, you people need to rejoice. You need to rejoice. We can count it all joy. He is writing from prison and saying that in the difficulty of these moments where I've lost my freedom, you haven't. 
I have to be depend upon other people to bring me food. Otherwise, I don't eat. You don't. I can't go anywhere I want to go on any day. He can't. You can. I have no way of communicating unless somebody comes and talks to me. They've taken my cell phone and put me in a cell. He's got a whole lot different than you and me. And yet he's writing and saying, I have learned to be content. I have worked on it. In whatsoever state, he says, whether I have a lot or have a little, I am learning to be content. I have been instructed, he says, to at times to be overflowing, and I have been instructed when my stomach is growling and I'm hungry for days. But I've learned to be content. Can you say that? Can you say you display a contentment even if you don't have a lot of clothes or shoes or games or if you have an abundance of them? Whether you have a lot of people visiting you or a few people. Whether you're enjoying good health or you're in pain and agony right now. You have learned and you're working on contentment. You have taken the challenge to say, it's not my circumstances that are dictating my mindset. I am not going to allow my work. I'm not going to allow my health. I'm not going to allow my coworkers. I'm not going to allow, allow the, the income to control my attitude of praising God or not. I'm going to let it be the Spirit of the Lord, which when the Spirit of the Lord brings into our heart, there is peace, there is joy, there is long-suffering, there is not the complaining, the criticism, contentment. Contentment is something that Paul says, it's not going to be dictated to me by things, by other people. I'm going to be an individual that no matter what my circumstance, I'm going to practice praise and contentment. I'm single, but I want to be married but I can still praise. I, I want better grades, but I'm doing the best I can. I'm going to become content. I can't do the sports the way others can, but I'm going to be content. I don't have as much stuff as some of the other teens have, but I'm going to become content. I, I, I may not have the talents and the skills that somebody, but I'm going to learn to be content. I don't have the fa same family structures that others. My parents have divorced, or God has taken somebody out of my life. But I'm going to learn to be content. And I have to work on it. And I have to practice it. And it's going to take a discipline in my life. But this is what God commands me to do. And very clearly, it can be done. Some of you recognize this gal. You've seen her when we've done trips years ago. She was working at Regeneration Reservation. Carrie is a sweetheart. She is one of those most contented people in my book, I see Carrie as one of those heroic individuals who has taken a life circumstance that is something that most all of us have never faced and she's using it for the glory of the Lord. Carrie's blind. She can see a little bit. She can see if I were to take off or you were to stand here or Carrie to be here, she might be able to see a little bit of your colored shirt there, Michelle. The other side, she can't see anything. She is a riot to play in bombardment. Okay, you can get her really good. Okay. But she plays. She's the one that we would let, now, now I'll tell you this. You know, if the teens thought it was too far to walk from the main part of the campus to the house where they were staying, if they stayed uh, to one of those home, the houses that was, you know, a couple hundred yards away, we'd let Carrie give the rides on the four-wheelers. Okay. <laughs> and she knew it well enough. You know, she was probably safer than the rest of us driving it. 
she has this sweet, sweet spirit around her. And if you talk to her and say, well, do, do, you, do you begrudge God giving you a blindness? No. This is the way God made me. This is the way God's using me. And God has given me other abilities and other, other talents and other skills to make up for it. And her comment to us years ago that I've not, never forgotten, she says, if God hadn't given me this blindness, I'd probably take a whole lot of things for granted. But I have learned through this lack of what others say is normal, I have learned that this is a blessing from God. What an attitude. What an attitude. Oh, we bring it together. Contentment is commanded by God. Contentment, we said, is not a personality trait, it's a personal discipline. Contentment, number three, is not to be based on your circumstances, but your mindset. Number four. Number four from this passage, okay, and others. Contentment. The spirit of contentment is going to be a constant target of satanic attacks. You are going to be attacked in this area. It's going to happen. Paul talks about his attacks, not in this text, but elsewhere. Let me take you all the way back to where it begins, where there are people who are sinless. The very beginning of humankind, in the Garden of Eden, Satan attacks and says to them right away, he says to them that these individuals should not be content with what God has given he attacks him right away. He says, yeah, really, isn't God holding back from you? God knows that if you ate from this fruit, you'd become as wise as him. And that spirit of discontent, I want something more. Somebody's not being fair to me. Somebody's not doing, grows and grows. Now, these are sinless people, and they still fall prey to the satanic attack. The attack that says, discontent with what God has given you. And he is so good at this. He targets individuals. He, he, he knows where he wants to get individuals. Hey, some of, you, uh, some of you in the last day or so, you targeted stores, right? You loved the Black Friday shopping. You had this target that you were going to get this special thing and woe be to anybody who got between you and that appliance. You targeted it. Some of you starting on Monday, you're going to be targeting big game, you hope. Where you focus in on, you say, okay, that's something I'm really after. Well, Satan is really after you. He is targeting at the very beginning Adam and Eve, and he goes after that area of contentment. They're not the only ones. Sinless Jesus comes on the scene, and in the the time that Jesus is in the wilderness, he attacks in contentment area. Change this stone into bread. Jesus has to respond. This says, if you have the word of God, it's enough. Wait, Wait a minute, wait a minute. You want to have the entire world laying you, bowing down before you. Don't be content with the plan that God has for you. I'll give you the world if you do it my way. You, you, want, to, you want more popularity. You want prestige. You want to be seen. Jump off the temple. And Jesus has to respond by saying, no, I'm content with the plan that God has put in my life. I'm content with the provisions God has put in my life. I'm content with the procedures that God is working in my life and has to debate with Satan and press him away by saying, I'm content. I'm content. It may not be, it may not be the most pleasant experience of going to the cross, but I'm content. This is what God has for my life. Paul comes on the scene. The one like us, a sinner. The one like us who has the spirit and yet Satan attacks him. 
and buffets him. And Paul goes to the Lord and says three times, can this take away, can you take away this thorn in the flesh? And God says, nope, 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 it's going to be there. This is something that, this is a trial that I know is good for you. It'll bring me more glory by doing it this way. And Paul has to come and say, my grace, your grace, is sufficient. Because when I am weak, then I am and he has to learn to be content. Learning to be content is so hard because Satan's going to attack you and me in this area time and time and time again. Don't be content. Don't be content with your income. Don't be content with your spouse. Don't be content with your parents. Don't be content with your worship, service, center, your church. Don't be content with the friends God has given you. Don't be content with the way God has made you look. Don't be content with what God hasn't given you. Don't be content with what God has taken away from you. And time and time again, we're challenged in this area of becoming content. And yet the Word of God says, work on it, work on it, work on it, work on it. Number five, spirit of contentment. It is not natural. It is not normal for us. This isn't part of our, our innate nature. In fact, our, part of our sin nature is not to give God the glory, not to be content. We read that it can be done, though, where Paul says in this passage, I can do all things through Christ Jesus. The idea here is this. The idea in Scripture is that as we get into the latter days, we are going to see more and more discontent. People not happy. People not thankful. I'm surprised we still have Thanksgiving as a national holiday. I think if the purpose of Thanksgiving was the only reason, it might be outlawed. But the idea that it's an extra shopping day makes it part of our, our system. Because the idea of stopping and giving God praise and God glory is so unpolitically correct. And even amongst the Christian community, we're becoming distracted and dissuaded from pausing and giving God the glory. We're coming to a point where church is about me and what I get out of it and how am I treated and how am I recognized and how am I catered to and how am I pampered. He says that in the last days, men are going to become more and more lovers of themselves Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful. Do you see a trend in our nation, in our society of lack of thanksgiving? Not being grateful for what is given? What is being done? In any more in our society, it's almost like you're expected to do this for me. As opposed to, you were generous, you were gracious, you're helping me out. And he says that's a trend and a tendency. But Paul writes and says, I can do all things. And again, I remind you, this isn't, you know, this isn't saying me can dunk a basketball if I just think Jesus, 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 and I can do something phenomenal. That's not what this context is about. Me. All of a sudden, I can, you know, I can become some fantastic singer because I can do all things through Christ. I just have to have this mindset and attitude. I can do it, I can do it, and therefore it happens. That's, that's totally out of context. In context, he's dealing with one of the hardest things in life to deal with, contentment. And he says, I have learned it. How can I come to a point of being content even while I'm in prison? Because I can do all things through Christ. 
I can change my attitude. I can become an individual despite the satanic attacks, despite that it's not natural. I can learn to become content through Jesus Christ. I can change my attitude. I can realize, even though I go to the Lord and say, take away this thorn in the flesh three times, I can learn by a mindset, by an attitude, by thinking, by being filled with the Spirit, that all of a sudden, His grace is sufficient. And when I'm weak, then am I strong. And God's grace, God's goodness. Hey, something happened to me that just was, that, that some of you were joking about. The last couple of weeks, been helping out mom pop hits with their with their walker you know getting it out there and helping him out and last week i came in and i was using the walker and i came walking in through the doors and i was using the walker going like this and there was a whole bunch of teens standing over there and they all caught it ha 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 and immediately in my pride it was stand straight up you know and, and kind of push the walker you know i'm not the only one People who need the walker don't want to use them, right? And yet, is it a beneficial tool? Because quite frankly, when you're weak with the walker, you become strong. Somebody was just sharing with me, said, you know, they've enjoyed using their walker because it's really helped their back out, because they're able to maneuver and manipulate and be able to control and it's like, here's something that's really helpful. But we, in our pride, don't want to touch it because we don't want to admit we are getting weaker and older, older, weaker. We don't want to touch it. And yet Paul has learned to say, hey, with, with, with my life, I've got trials. I've got struggles. I have got natural weaknesses and satanic weaknesses in my life. And when I realize and accept I am weak, then am I strengthened. How much better if we would use the walker of Jesus Christ in our everyday life and start as a young person to say, I need Christ. I need Christ. I need Christ to help me to become more content at home when I look in my closet. Christ, help me to become more content with the rules that my parents have set up. Christ helped me become more content with, I don't have a boyfriend or girlfriend at this moment. Christ helped me to become more content with the spirit that I should have when it comes to the school I'm going to, the homework I'm given. If you can develop that spirit of contentment as a teenager, how much stronger you will be as a Christian when you get into your 20s, 30s, and 40s, and those of us who are older would envy you to be able to get a handle on this early in life. This contentment aspect can give you another thought. It will produce great blessings in your life and in the life of others around you. If you work on the spirit of contentment, what a blessing it will be to you and to others. Let me show you what I mean. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For who? For you who are practicing it. For you who are employing it. For you who are working it through in your life. Look at how Paul says it in chapter 4, the same text. Go back a few verses. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And then the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Do you understand what he means by moderation? 
Moderation is the idea of gentleness, the opposite of bickering and complaining. It is the idea of graciousness. It is the idea of being a person who is attractive to others, not physically, but by spirit, because you are kind, you are gracious, you are positive, you are gentle, not a grump and not a complainer. And he says, if we have this spirit of moderation within us, he says, and not be careful, but be content with what God has given us, not worrying. Then he goes on, he says, God will give you a spirit where that there will be a peace that passes all understanding in your heart and minds and shall guard you spiritually through Jesus Christ. There's great benefit in learning to become content, not only for your life, but for the lives of those around you. That idea of, of the blessings coming into your life are clear in scriptures, but also the impact you'll make upon others. Let, let me see if I can do this, okay? Any of you ever eat at Chick-fil-A? Yes, no? What is their statement to you when you're there and asking for something? My pleasure. My pleasure. Some of you are smiling while you're saying it. All of a sudden they respond and there's the, the, the business, one of their mottos is built on interaction with the customer where it's a pleasant experience, that it is my pleasure to wait on you. Let's change this. You go into a restaurant and you're a bother to those who are working there to get your food. They make it very clear you're a distraction. You're interrupting whatever they want to do. Does it make your eating experience neat? by having a grump serve you? The answer is no. No. I remember, this is years ago, I remember that we visited somebody here out on the other side of the river in Harrisburg at one of the hospitals. And so we got out and we thought we'd get something to eat so Deb and I ran into an Arby's. This Arby's, and it's not the food, this Arby's was so cool, so neat that the next time we went to the hospital to see that person again, we arranged it so that we could go to that Arby's again. And it wasn't the beef, okay? It was the person behind the counter. There was this woman that would greet people. She had pom-poms. As people would come in, Yay! Good to see you! Thanks for being here! She'd take an order. Yay! Good to see you! Thank you! I'm telling you, this place was packed. When we were standing in line... You know, I turned and I said, why do you come here? Her. <laughs> Everyone in line was talking about her. She made their day. Because I don't think their bosses were going, hey, it's good to see you. But somebody, somebody was making their day by showing genuine delight in their presence. Now, have you ever been in a place where it's genuine? We told you about when we were in Anchorage a few weeks and months ago. When we were up there, there was a waitress that when she was trying to serve us, she was, she was a dingbat of dingbats, okay? <laughs> it, it was an unbelievable experience that I don't ever want to repeat. And so after she had tried to wait on us and got our order mixed up and mixed up. There were several people who came in and she says, I'm too busy, go away. Literally, she told it to the people. 
we don't have any more room for you. And one of the guys says, there's five empty tables. I'm too busy. Go away. Yeah, she was not good for business. Just to say, do you realize something? God has put you in a spot where you are an advertisement for him. Do you want to see it? It's in the same book. Philippians chapter 2. He uses the idea of a billboard. You're the billboard. He says in verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now, much more my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Verse 14. Do all things... What's it read? Okay, okay. Could we put a word in here? Be content. Okay. That you may be blameless, harmless the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Billboarding the word of life. That's verse 16. You are, a, you are an advertisement for Christ. You are a display for Christ. You are bringing people in or pushing people out, and one of the key is your attitude, your mindset. What do you have? What does Christianity offer? Does, is Christianity one where they are drawn to Christ by you? They are drawn to belief and trust and confidence in God because of the way you react, the way you talk about how things are going in your life, how things, all things work together for good, but you complain through the whole thing. How God meets your needs, but you're not happy with the way he's meeting them. How the Lord is answering your prayers, but not the way you want them, and as quick as you want them. What, are you, what kind of advertisement are you for Jesus? That people would look and say, that is what I want. I want a peace that passes all understanding in the midst of a crooked, perverse world a troubled world where the news is depressing, where the economy is discouraging, and where the believers are lights beaming with joy and contentment with the God that they serve. Are you beaming anybody towards Jesus Christ? Are you bringing anybody by your attitude? The way we react to situations... You're either a pouting or you're like a pearl. You all know this. That nacre, that's that chemical within the pearl, when sand gets in there, it starts surrounding that sand, that grits, that irritates the oyster. It starts surrounding it with that nacre. And eventually it forms and it becomes a pearl, something that is priceless. But the, but the, the, the animal takes the trial, takes the trouble, and makes something precious out of it. In something that people want, others want, you face trials. You face troubles. Your nacre is contentment, is peace, is joy, is rejoicing and counting it all joy. And as a result, you create something that others will want, something precious, something priceless. But some of you aren't producing pearls. Some of you, it's pouting. It's criticism. It's the complaining. It's the finding fault. It's the looking for something bigger and better and grass is greener elsewhere. And you won't find it. 
No matter how many pastures you jump to, you'll never find it because the problem isn't the pasture. The problem is you. The problem is you have not taken into account what he is teaching us in this passage and others. Contentment is not a personality trait. It is a personal discipline. It is a command by God. It is not dependent upon your circumstances. It is something that you can do through Jesus Christ, though Satan attacks you. But you have to respond the right way. So where do you start? How do we start? Working at becoming more content, can I give you three practical steps to make this week that you can work on? Number one is this. Remember your ultimate purpose. Remember why you are who you are. Remember why God made you. We go back to scriptures and we hear very simply that the conclusion of the whole matter is to fear God, to exalt God, to worship God. This is the whole duty of man. The whole duty is about God. It's not about you. We go to the New Testament where we know that God is worthy of all honor and praise. That is why he has created us. For his glory, for his pleasure, for him to be exalted. We know that whatever happens in our life, we are to do all for the glory of God. We understand time and time again that bringing God the glory is the issue. Joe DiMaggio, you ever hear of him? Okay, famous Yankee, that just cringes here, but Yankee baseball player. He goes off to war, fights in the war, comes back, and now it's 1945, troops are coming home. He and others of the legends are coming home, and he has yet to start his baseball season. He decides to go and to sit in the stands for the last game before he starts playing. He gets in the stands, and he's sitting there with his 11-year-old boy, who's Joe Jr., and the crowd around him starts chanting, DiMaggio, Joe DiMaggio, Joe DiMaggio, Joe DiMaggio. And the crowd starts picking it up because he's such an iconic baseball figure at that time. And he looks down at his son, and his son is beaming. And he says, Dad, they're cheering for me. Aren't sometimes we like his boy? We think all the accolades should come to us, but they really belong to our Father. We think it's about churches, about us, but it's really about God. We think that, we think that our life is about us. It's really about him. What you and I need to work at is remember why are we here? We're to praise God. We're to bring him glory. This is all about giving him more honor and more glory. Remember your spiritual possessions. Not just your purpose, but your spiritual possessions. What God has given you and me. Ephesians, turn there. Let me just show you as we wrap up here in Ephesians chapter 1. This whole text is about possessions that we have. How God has given so much. I was reading a story about a woman. Her name is Ruth Dillo. Her son Clayton. This true story. 1991. She gets contacted by the military that says, we are sorry to inform you, but your son, Corporal Clayton, stepped on a mine and he died in combat. She is grieving. She is brokenhearted. She is unconsolable. First day, second day, third day, they're waiting for news of the remains and the phone rings. She picks up the phone and says, hi, Mom, it's Clayton. She doesn't believe it. She has a tough time. They talk for a little bit, sounds like him. She finds out it was a mistaken identity, but nobody told her. 
her son was alive, not injured. Can you imagine the joy she felt that she got her son back? Can you imagine the joy the disciples felt when they thought they lost Jesus? And all of a sudden he comes back and he's alive. And you and I realize, right? He's alive not just because of them. He came back from the grave because of you and me. He came back, he died, gave his life and comes back to give us eternal life. To give us forgiveness. To give us the opportunity to enjoy spiritual blessings. They cost him his life. He spent our hell and he spent our eternity in hell so that we could have spiritual possessions, but he came back to life. He's risen. He's alive and seated at the Father, giving to us things that, that are beyond our comprehension. And they are listed. Some of them are listed in Ephesians chapter 1 where he starts listing off and he says, we give God praise, we give God glory. By the way, this is one sentence, verses 3 through 14. It's all one, he starts off, he says, praise be to God, our Father, the Lord Jesus. He has blessed us in heaven with places in Christ according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. This whole idea that he gives us these spiritual blessings, this idea that he's provided us the assurance from the, from the beginning that he has said, you're going to be in heaven with me. We have secure in Christ. We cannot be taken out of his hand. Aren't you so glad that once you are saved, he keeps us saved? He goes on, he talks about in this passage, he says, in having predestinated us to the adoption of his children, we're part of his family, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, we are accepted in the beloved. We become part of his family, and he finds us acceptable in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, wherein he hath abounded towards us in all wisdom. And he says, in prudence. And he's giving us all this graciousness. He goes, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, he goes on and he says, according to his good pleasure, that in the dispensation of fullness of times he might gather us together in one. We have that hope of heaven to be reunited with all of our loved ones in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things to his counsel that we should be to the praise of his glory in whom you also trusted after that you heard the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after that you, were, you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have the down payment of the inheritance until the redemption and purchase possession. To him be the glory and the honor and the praise. He has given us so much. How can we complain? Then remember his promises. Remember what he has promised to do for you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Become content. He has promised for you that his grace is sufficient in every situation. You can handle it. He has promised you that all things work together for good to them that love God or are calling toward his purpose. He has promised you a home in heaven. He has promised you answered prayer. He has promised you the encouragement. He has given us so much and we complain. Charlotte Elliott lived a long time ago. The woman was paralyzed, handicapped. We don't know the full circumstances, but we do know of one day in her life as she was in her adult years. She was begrudging the fact for the last, though she was saved and loved the Lord, she couldn't do things others could do. She couldn't go to church regularly because she was somewhat paralyzed. She would, it would be such a bother to get her to church. 
She couldn't serve the way others served. And on this particular day, her brother, who was a preacher town and well known throughout the Commonwealth there, he was, he was holding an auction to help raise funds for an orphanage. And everybody in her house had been working now for the last few days. Her other sister, her sons, her brother's family, everybody was just involved with getting this auction set, getting everything ready, and she found herself getting more and more and more depressed. She couldn't do the same things they could do. She just had to be by the side, and she just couldn't serve God the way that they were serving God. And it got her more and more depressed. Everybody left that day. They're off now. She can see down the street, crowds are gathering where they're going to do this auction. They're all having a grand time, and she's stuck in the house. So to challenge her heart and encourage herself, she started writing a poem. She writes a poem that we're going to sing. It's a poem about contentment. It's a poem that has to deal with coming to Christ. It's a poem that ends up becoming one of the most famous hymns of all time, and as her brother later will write after she dies, he will write that she has impacted more lives than his preaching ever did through the song that she wrote. The song was written to become content in the way that we can come to Christ, just as we are. We come to Jesus just as we are. We surrender. He takes our sin and gives us forgiveness. Just as we are, he helps us through the different battles, the different struggles. It comes to a place of contentment, coming to Christ and finding real peace.